Pastor Dave poses this question as we begin another balanced word. What brings you to the point of awe? What brings you to the point of going, I don't even know what to say, a star-filled night? Well, the problem is in our culture, we've so much done away with. Everything is asphalt over everything. Trees are artificial. There are, you know, there, there are so many things that we have done to destroy the beauty of nature, but also destroy the awesomeness of nature. It's why to really worship God, it helps if you get away, get out to a beautiful place, and it's like going, wow, here's something that I just can't go, yep, I can describe that. It's as simple as that. Wake up my soul. Wake up early in the day. Wake up my hand. And the instrument I play. Wake up my voice. Let the world hear me say, you are worshipped and it's all to hear today. Greetings and welcome again to The Balanced Word with Pastor Dave Rolfe. We're in 2 Samuel 22 today, continuing a series called Kingdom Building. Near the end of his life, King David wrote a powerful psalm, which we'll explore in a moment. Remember, he's just fought off two rebellions and his nation is still intact. So what does he choose to do? Worship. Allow this to encourage you to do the same as you reflect on nature and all that the Lord has done in your life. According to what the scripture teaches us about worship, it's the creation of God that really mostly magnifies and describes who he is. He speaks to us, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Day and today utter speech, night and tonight they show forth knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice isn't heard. The beauty and the awesomeness of nature speaks undeniably about the greatness of God. And so throughout the scriptures, that becomes the uh, you know, primary metaphor for God and the primary metaphor for what he does. David, the psalmist, who we will look at a psalm, the last psalm that he wrote today in 2 Samuel chapter 22, but it was one of his favorite things is to look at nature and connect it with the, the wonder and the splendor of God. You know, even the, the very element of, okay, we're talking about a guy who's doing life right. You know, he's like a tree planted by a river of water, brings forth its fruit in a season, his leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does will prosper. Well, now in 2 Samuel 22, David is at the end of his life, just about. This, is, this will be the last psalm that he wrote. And this psalm, it's also Psalm 18 in the book of Psalms, but he wrote it at this point in his life. Now, if you haven't been with us, we've seen the life of David is crazy. It's amazing. It's such a story. He starts out as a kid who's working as a little kid out there taking care of sheep, but practicing with his slang and developing certain skills and courage and insights into nature and even the scary elements of nature. Then he kills a giant and becomes a national hero, gets hired by Saul to work with him. He's a great musician and a great fighter, and those worked really well together. He marries a princess, but now Saul gets mad at him and just begins to you know, attack him, and David ends up on the run, and in the best years of his life, the most fruitful and productive age of his life, 
He's running away from Saul. He's living in caves. He's out in the woods with a bunch of scrappy guys who basically the world would describe them as losers. But they had each other, and they were there, and they scrapped. And he ends up becoming the king of Israel. And yes, he had scandals. There were things that happened that weren't good, but there were lessons that he learned from that. He ended up, as we've been reading about, two different revolutions, basically, two different coups. One of them led by his son, who chases him out of Jerusalem and and just really made a mess of things. David ended up being delivered in that case, much to his heartbreak, as his son was killed. Then another guy, Sheba, steps up and he leads a rebellion. That too was quashed. Then we saw, you know, in the last chapter, these people, the Gibeonites, who were, were guys who were allowed to live right in the center of northern Israel because they had made a deal generations before with Joshua. But now they're starting to get cranky because their understanding from their history that King Saul had come and attacked them, violating that treaty. And now there's no rain for three years because God really wants to deal with this. But David ended up going to the Gibeonites, making peace with them, which is hugely important in the future, so that his son could inherit a kingdom, Solomon could inherit a kingdom that doesn't have a major angry enemy right in the middle of it. Um, and, and so he does that, but he had to sacrifice. He had to give over seven descendants of Saul to be sacrificed in order to do it. And we talked about how, you know, guy, that, that seems really bizarre until you consider that once David dies, the grown-up, you know, descendants of Saul are a huge threat to his son Solomon. And so it's kind of like uh, killing two birds with one stone in a way where this is one threat removed and the threat of the Gibeonites is removed. And then he goes and, and they kill the sons of Goliath, the Philistine giant, because you know, as soon as David's out of the way, they're going to come in and get revenge on the son of, you know, they'll come and kill Solomon because their dad was killed by their, you know, by his dad. So all these things kind of come together in the previous chapter and have been resolved. And now David's like, wow, what do I do? What do I think? And he writes this amazing psalm here in 2 Samuel 22, and it's also in Psalm 18. So David, it says, verse 1, spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. The day when God delivered him from all of his enemies, delivered him from the Philistines, delivered him from, as he says, the hand of Saul. Because see, God knew those guys were going to be a threat. Now they aren't anymore. And so here he is. His nation is intact. He has fought off two rebellions. And now he's like, it's time to worship God which is such a, it tells us why he's a man after God's heart. He had an amazing capacity to do that. We have a tendency, frankly, to, to devalue artistic expressions, to think of songs as what we do before church. But the real church is when we get down to the facts, when we do the, you know, the study. That it, and yet God looks at it a lot differently, and the man after God's heart ends up writing this long poem, basically, to celebrate everything that had happened. 
And the fact that that seems weird to us, we kind of don't sometimes understand how important is the expression of actual worship. It, it's critically important. It's, by the way, it's one of the things that it's, clearly we are going to do for all of eternity. Now, whenever you think worship, if you look at worship in the Bible, it's often and repeatedly referencing the, the more awesome aspects of nature. Because the things that we see in nature that are the most shocking, that are the most intimidating, in some ways the most scary, are often the things that get put into these worship songs. Because, see, the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork, day to day they utter speech. So it's like everything that's intimidating and awesome and scary about creation, that's a clue toward who God is. Because when you see something amazing in nature that could be overwhelming, when you feel a wave suck you under and you're like, I'm not sure which way is up and I don't know when I'm going to get my next breath, the one thing that does is let you realize how fragile you are. Or when you're of, you know, climbing on a hill and all of a sudden you're losing your footing and you're hanging on and there's nobody around to help you or when you're in a storm and it looks like you're going to be washed away or when, you know, lightning's striking or, you know, the earth shakes, you go, whoa, nothing reminds me of what I'm not, like the power of nature. And so it regularly in scripture, artistic expressions concerning the nature of nature, connect us with the nature of God. I mean, if you're raised, born and raised in California like me, earthquakes aren't a big deal. So if you go, like God's like an earthquake, you're like, yeah, comes and goes. Damages hillbillies out in meth country, you know. <laughs> We're fine here. It doesn't do it to us. I, I remember as a kid, our, my, my relatives in Oklahoma were afraid to come to California because of earthquakes. In their neighborhood, a tornado would come down the street and just wipe out a trailer park. And they're like, eh, you know, it's just that's the way life is. But there's something healthy. And now it's cool they have earthquakes back there, too. So I'm thankful for that. But um, what brings you to the point of awe? What brings you to the point of going, I don't even know what to say? A star-filled night? Well, the problem is in our culture, We've so much done away with. Everything is asphalt over everything. Trees are artificial. There are, you know, there, there are so many things that we have done to destroy the beauty of nature, but also destroy the awesomeness of nature. It's why to really worship God, it helps if you get away, get out to a beautiful place, and it's like going, wow, here's something that I just can't go, yep, I can describe that. It's as simple as that. Nature doesn't become more amazing as you try to analyze and evaluate it. You end up missing the point of it. So here, he begins to write, and he says, On the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and the hand of Saul, and he said, The Lord, Yahweh, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I'll call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. And then check this out. When the waves of death surrounded me, death, 
It's like it's going to swallow you up. It's going to suck you in at some point. And when you're in that feeling of, ah, there's waves, and, and what do I do? The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol, you know, the grave, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry entered his ears. Then... The earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven quaked and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils. See, it's not literally like God has nostrils that blow smoke. It's like, no, anything that I've ever experienced or anything that I could ever imagine, as scary, as awesome, as wild as I can go to, then that's what I'm saying, God, you're that. You're more amazing than all of these things that I'm describing. And it says that, you know, the coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down, darkness under his feet, rode upon a cherub and flew, and he was seen upon the wings of the wind. Use your imagination. He made darkness, canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High utters his voice. He sent out armies and scattered them, lightning bolts, vanquished them. Channels of the sea were visible. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. So he's like, God is beyond description. But the most incredible things that you will ever see in life, the most awesome nature of what the world is, gives you a hint that God's in that kind of territory. He's in that kind of category. Not to be analyzed and interpreted and boiled down to some boring theological concept. When the Bible describes God, it never gives a systematic theology. It's like, you look at this, lightning, thunder, waves, crashing and all. Isn't that, doesn't that put you more in awe than, you know, the shorter Westminster Catechism definition of God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, power, holiness, justice, and truth. Blah. No, God is lightning, he's thunder, he's waves crashing over you, he's mountains, he's traveling through the sky. David's understanding is, I can't totally describe him, but God, you're like this. The most incredible things that I see are the very things that you are and then some, because you made all that stuff. And so the heavens, again, declare the glory of God. But then he, he kind of shifts in verse 21, and it almost sounds like bragging, because now he's talking about, and God's been good to me because I'm good. You're like, uh, David, did you forget all the bad things that your scandal-ridden regime that you... But bear with him here. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed, recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me. <laughs> As for his statutes, I didn't depart from them. I was also blameless as far as he was concerned. Before him, I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of his eyes. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. 
With the blameless, you'll be blameless. With the pure, you'll show yourself to be pure. With the devious, you will show yourself. It's the same Hebrew word. People get sneaky with you, you get sneaky with them. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. So how can he say, you've rewarded me according to my righteousness? Well, every one of us in our life, we can categorize every choice that we make. Either that was the right thing or that was the wrong thing. And so when we look at our lives, I have a choice. Do I have the concept of, well, I did more bad than good? Or do I understand that here at the end of my life, all that matters is God? And the fact that God has rewarded when I made good choices. Now, you're also thankful that, you know, he shows mercy. See, David, when he had his greatest failure, I think it was probably his greatest failure, although you can argue there are greater consequences to some of his other sins, but ultimately murder and adultery was a pretty bad thing. But he confessed it to God, and Nathan, speaking for God, said, and God has forgiven you. David clearly believes that. He clearly believes that as far as God's concerned, that is set aside. So what's left? David did a lot of good things. And he said, you know, yes, of course, there are negative consequences. But his point here in praising God is, man, everything good I ever did, you rewarded. The other stuff, you know, it's you paid for it and everything, but that's not worthy of praise of God. He isn't like, and a lot of times I think when we praise God, we're like, God, thank you that you forgave me for this, you forgave me for this, you forgave me for this. That's not understanding who God is and how God understands us. See, when God looks at us, he says, okay, you've confessed your sins. Push those aside. Now here's how I see you. And David understands that. Don't get obsessed with, oh, God, thank you for forgiving me for when I did this. And thank you for forgiving me and loving me, even though I know I don't deserve it. And it, No, it's David's heart for God is like, I'm amazed that anything good I ever did was done and that you made it pay, that you made it beneficial, that you made it a blessing. See, what David's really celebrating here is the biggest gift that God gave other than his son, which is the gift of us being able to make choices and having legitimate consequences for those choices. Now, am I thankful for bad choices I made? No. But if I'm praising God, push those aside. What I'm thankful for is that once in a while, I'll do something and God blesses it. And I go, a choice that I made resulted in a good consequence. And when you're worshiping God, that's where the emphasis should be. The other stuff just burns up. It doesn't matter anymore. But for David to, to celebrate God because of the fact that God has given this, us this amazing ability to make choices that actually have consequences, that's so powerful. I don't understand why people would want to believe in a God who decides everything for you. That God doesn't trust you to be able to do anything realistic at all. And then other people who are like, well, you know, God's kind of weighing it out. I don't know. How good, how do you weigh off, well, I wrote this song and then I killed these guys. So 
But when you have a God who forgives when you make bad choices, even though he will allow you to have consequences from them as great reminders, but the truth is that your future and mine can be influenced by the choices that we make today. And that's a powerful truth. And it's because God gives us that opportunity. And so here, you know, he, I think David is just going, man, I thank you for that you rewarded me according to my righteousness. I thank you that when I did the right thing, good things happened to me. Now, forget about when I do the wrong things. That ultimately ends up, yeah, you pay for that yourself. But the fact that you can do something that God can bless, the fact that ever in your life you'd be able to do something that might help somebody else or imagine having a hand in someone else coming to salvation or someone who thinks that nobody loves them, understanding that somebody loves them, that's amazing that we could have that kind of influence. And so David's like, you know what? You reward good choices and I'm just gonna celebrate that. And so, you know, I like that. And it tells us a lot about worship, really, and the man after God's heart. You're listening to The Balanced Word with our pastor and teacher, Dave Rolfe. Today's message is part of our study in First and Second Samuel called Kingdom Building. Stay with us for more teaching from Pastor Dave in just a moment. These programs are available by podcast at thebalancedword.com. You can also call and request a CD copy at 949-362-362. 7475. You might also want to request the entire Kingdom Building series, again at 949-362-7475. We'd also like to offer you Pastor Dave's Through the Bible in a Year series on a USB thumb drive for a gift of $25 or more. Go Through the Bible in a Year with Pastor Dave by ordering this special series today. Again, call 949-362-7475 or order online at thebalancedword.com. Your gifts help to make these shows possible on stations like this one all across the nation. Thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. Donations can be made at thebalancedword.com. Have you had a chance to listen to Pastor Dave's one-minute messages? You can listen to those at thebalancedword.com and even join our mailing list so you can have them delivered to you each day. You can watch them on Instagram or Facebook too by following CC Pacific Hills. Pastor Dave would love to have you join us at Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Our service times on Sunday morning are at 8, 9.45, and 11.30. Directions and more information about the church can be found online at ccpacifichills.org. You can watch our live stream there too, ccpacifichills.org. If we can pray for you in any way, we ask that you contact us through thebalancedword.com or by calling us at 949-362-7475. Now let's be encouraged to walk in humility as we turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 22 with Pastor Dave. The only way you win with him is by humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, so humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That's kind of what he's saying here. When you see people in pride, you bring them down. And essentially, David is kind of subtly saying, thank you that when I was humble, you elevated me. But when I was prideful, you crushed me. That really helped God. That was really beneficial for the world, for me personally, for those around me. And ultimately, it's to your glory. But I'm thankful that I ever had an opportunity to do good for somebody. And if I did that, it was because of my humility. 
we misunderstand a lot of times. We, it seems like, oh, doing great things for God means look at me. David understood. Now, the times when people were going, whoa, look at you, that didn't accomplish anything. I didn't want that attention. I didn't, you know, power corrupts. That's something that we all fight because God gives us certain capabilities and then he blesses them and we start thinking that we're somebody and that pride comes before destruction. It comes before a fall. And so David's like, the best things I ever did were the things I did from humility. Thank you for acknowledging that. And by implication, I'm glad that when I was prideful, things didn't work out so well ultimately. I think in our culture, it's hard for us to have any concept of how in the world is humility a real valuable trait? Because in our culture, we value pride over everything else. We want our you know, Instagram celebrities. We want to be known. We want to make a difference. We want a lot of followers. We, and David understood, no, God, I'm just thankful that ultimately you taught me that that means nothing, that what I want to do is walk in humility. Discovering balance living through the Word of God? You've been listening to The Balanced Word. Set aside another half hour next time to hear another study in our Kingdom Building series from Pastor Dave Raw. This program is listener supported and brought to you by Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Wake up my soul. Wake up early in the day. Wake up my hands. And the instrument I play. Wake up my